Support for the game podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the game podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 82 of the Game Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Thompson. Here with me is Brian Gromash Hellscream Gottlieb. Dude, why why Grom? Just trying to set up to get that next invite to, to the next big magic tournament coming up. I gotta <laughs> establish my ties to the Hearthstone community if I want to get into those high EV tournaments. So I figured I'd just throw it out there. Damn, dude. <laughs> that is a topic that we did not cover. Uh, I went on the Cedric Phillips podcast and, and talked about that a little bit there. And I'm sure if you follow him on Twitter, you probably saw that. But yeah, man, I didn't know that we were going there. No, I mean, I don't want to go too deep into it. We're kind of a strategy podcast, not a what's going on in the magic world podcast. But I had to at least mention it. And, you know, I was pretty upset to see the strategy behind who was invited to this $150,000 tournament at the next Pro Tour. So I just wanted to put my two cents out there. I don't think it's a great way to kind of reward your player base for unfailing support and dedication to the pro lifestyle by pulling in a bunch of Hearthstone pros to participate in the highest EV tournament of the year. But that's all I really want to say about it. Pretty unacceptable. Hope it changes. Did you listen to the podcast I did with Cedric? A bit, a bit. I didn't listen to the whole thing, but it, it sounds like you guys are very much on the same page that I am. And, you know, I think... You put forth a lot of cogent points, not only why this is kind of like insulting, but also it doesn't make a ton of sense from a marketing or what's best for the game standpoint. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, we are a strategy podcast, I suppose. So maybe we should just move on. That's fine. And talk about some modern. Uh, We have Corset 2019 coming up, and that will almost certainly affect standard to some degree. But uh, this is the week before the pre-release, so... No real tournaments coming up uh, very quickly or anything. So I thought this was a good time to talk about Modern. And last weekend, there were a couple big events. There was GP Barcelona that had, uh, I think, just under 1,500 players. And then uh, SCG Tour event in Atlanta. And both events were kind of wild. Barcelona had Dredge defeating KCI in the finals. And Infect won the uh, Modern Open in Atlanta defeating titan shift so what the hell man what's going on well i think we're looking at as always a rotational format of modern i mean things are kind of speeding up in some places while they slow down in other places and there's this ripple effect that happens throughout rounds of a tournament and as a tournament goes on where you know it only takes a slight slanting of the field in one direction like say barcelona is eight percent control decks and the scg open is three percent control decks and that ripples throughout rounds and rounds and rounds and is able to generate vastly different final outcomes you know to say nothing of the inherent variance in magic itself that's why you can get this two very separate points separate metagames but honestly they're reflective of the same general concerns it's how do you address kci what are we doing about kci in some ways you could argue that the Barcelona metagame is a little bit ahead of the Star City Games metagame, or even the modern PTQ we looked at just a few weeks ago that had a ton of 
uh, in fact, floating around, black green, in fact, floating around all over the place. You could see how this could very much be taken as a reaction to those decks gaining metagame share. Blue white control is not a deck we've seen in large numbers for quite some time now, but it was uh, seemingly pretty dominant over in Barcelona. And is that a function of European players favoring this archetype? Is it a function of them figuring out this is how we're going to deal with this next step? This is how we're dealing with the rise of Infect and you know those kind of 3.5-ish combo decks? Uh, it's hard to say, but definitely a, a fascinating look at the modern metagame, the rapidly evolving modern metagame. There's also a, a Moto PTQ as well, which had you right. know very interesting results in and of itself. It was won by KCI, besting Tron in the finals. So yeah, crazy stuff. KCI remains a player for sure. And we're starting to see the first threads of reaction to KCI's kind of newfound dominance. Ooh, I actually, I didn't see this PTQ because uh, they posted Modern Constructed League for July 3rd, which I looked at, and then Popper Challenge right under it, July 2nd. And the PTQ also posted on July 3rd is under that for some reason. So I missed the PTQ. Yeah, this was an interesting one. And, you know, I, I ran to check it out because I played this PTQ. I, I lost back-to-back Tron mirrors <laughs> very early on, and that was the end of my day. But I just wanted to see, you know, did I make the right choice? Was it a field I could have found success in? And Tron did do well in the tournament, so that kind of checked out. But uh, a lot of other threads here and a lot of other things to unpack. Yeah. Did you see the Modern Challenge? No, I did not see the Modern Challenge. First, second, and third place. Oh, Pyromancer, right? All, all Marty Pyromancer. Yeah, I saw someone tweet about it. I, I didn't see the results myself. but And that's a result that, given what's going on in these other four tournaments that I'm looking at right now, which is the Open, the Classic, Barcelona, and the Modern PTQ, that's a result where I'm like, huh, how did that come about? Because, you know, it's classically played the role, Mardu Pyromancer, that is, has classically played the role of humans beater. And there's not a lot of humans floating around any of these tournaments really at this point. So we talked a little bit a few weeks ago about how Mardu could potentially prey on control strategies. Maybe that's what we're seeing um, with the Mardu dominance in the modern challenge. Hard to say, really. Yeah, I don't know. I The deck is quite good at beating humans and other creature decks, but there there's also the capacity to be kind of like this sort of combo breaker. Like you have access to a lot of the same stuff that like Grixis Death Shadow does with like K-Command, the discard spells, a fast-ish clock, and you can play things like Disenchants and Graveyard Hate and like Stony Silence if you want to, Blood Moon, like you can be very, very disruptive. So it wouldn't surprise me if the Mardu decks kind of morph into that sort of role. But like, we're also seeing Grixis Death Shadow just kind of pick up in popularity because of that and because there are fewer humans decks. Right. If I think back to to modern, just a, you know, a few years ago, that was kind of White's role in the format for a long time is when these type of unfair strategies picked up, you know, artifacts, based decks, graveyard-based decks, white decks could step in, play Rest in Peace. They could play Stony Silence and keep them down, keep them in check. It was kind of the role that Abzan played for a long time. You know, not a deck I've historically been very high on, but it was the check on the metagame. It was able to go to the white cards and kind of put these unfair decks into their place. And it could be that Mardu Pyromancer is looking to branch out and take over that slot and, you know, use the disruptive white cards to the fullest. Yeah, and you kind of see that happening. Like more and more people are playing the second copy of Sacred Foundry and right. adding adding a few more white cards to their sideboard. And given uh, how this weekend played out, I'm I'm kind of down with that. You know, so we'll see what happens going forward. 
Yeah, I, I could totally see this deck adapting a much heavier white mana base and, and being able to play a lot more of these style of cards. Yeah, and even something like Mana Morphos is just like another reasonable way to fix sure. your mana. Sure, but very true. looking at the Day 2 metagame breakdown for SCG Atlanta, it like the, the top of it is just relatively flat. Like, it's four humans, four Jeskai Control, four Affinity, four Mono Green Tron, four Infect, although it doesn't specify which version, maybe it is just green-blue, and then three Ironworks, three Grixis Death Shadow, three Burn, three Storm, and three Blue-White Control. It, it is just weird to me where before it was just like, all right, you know, like Jeskai and humans are the big two decks, and then everything else that Day 2's these opens is going to be like maybe three to five copies, whereas Jeskai's like, you know, 10 to 14, somewhere in that range, and humans is about the same, and now it's just like... Totally flat. Well, yeah, totally flat. Like... Humans and Jeskai are getting beaten for the most part, and all of these other decks are just kind of like rising up to take advantage of that. And I think Grixis Death Shadow is the big outlier where it's like this deck was so good for a little bit, then humans popped up. Pro Tour Arrivals was kind of the turning point where humans did super well, Grixis did pretty poorly, and Grixis just kind of fell off the map because humans had just been crushing it for so long. And now we might finally see humans actually you know, just becoming like another player in the metagame and not like the de facto deck to beat. So Grixis Death Shadow can reprise its role as combo breaker as things like Ironworks, Infect, Tron, etc. pop up. Mm-hmm. And, and you're buying them in that role, right? You think Death Shadow, I mean, I know you'll be excited when it's time to play Death Shadow again. It's a deck you definitely have had success with, you like, you think we're getting close to that point? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the thing about Grixis specifically and not Jund is that you, you have disruption and a fast clock, and that will get you so far. But having uh, like Thoughtseize plus clock plus counterspell in Starmer Denial is the thing that just puts them over the top against these combo decks. Because not only do you have ways to just like shred their hand, but you also have ways to stop things that come off of the top of their deck. Or, sure. you know, you also just have more relevant pieces of interaction, too. And you don't run the risk of like having an Inquisition and not being able to hit like their KCI and stuff like that. Like Stubborn Denial just kind of like covers a lot of your bases. And while you can add that into the Jun Death Shadow decks, like you still have Tarmogoyf instead of Gurmag Angler, which is a little bit on the slow side. And Snapcaster Mage just gives you more virtual copies of all of these cards. So I, I think when you're playing a combo deck, like Grix's Death Shadow is just kind of the nightmare. Yeah, I think I'm ready to buy that at this point. It would not surprise me if the next time we're sitting down to talk modern, we're talking about a top eight with, you know, two to three copies of this deck. I mean, modern remains such a fascinating format as far as week to week evolutions of the metagame go. I posited before and we were speaking a little bit before the cast that this is probably the most open metagame in the history of Magic. Something like that day two metagame that you just spouted off completely supports that. I mean, everything is viable. There's like 10 tier one decks. And there's been many formats where you could say there's 10 playable decks, 10 reasonable decks. I don't know that there's been many times where you could say there's 10 tier one decks, like a completely defensible choice, you know, up and down the line for so many different archetypes. And they're so varied in their approach to the game. You know, there's uninteractive stuff like Tron. There's crazy combos like KCI. There's the combo breaker and Death Shadow. Just every single facet of the metagame being represented week after week at this point. Yeah, I mean, the macro archetypes for modern are stack-based decks, creature-based decks, graveyard artifact, and then just kind of like 
mid-rangey decks, and I think that basically covers everything. Mm-hmm. And this specific metagame right now, like you're sort of lacking in graveyard related things, but like Jeskai uses the graveyard a little bit, Ironworks kind of does too, Grixis Death Shadow, Mardu, like you have those sorts of things. And then there's well, also like Hollow Dredge won a GP too. I mean Right. And and I was gonna say Hollow One and Dredge are like the the two like unfair decks trying to, to utilize the graveyard, right? And maybe Dredge shows up a little bit more with this GP win. Maybe it is actually kind of well positioned, but that, that kind of remains to be seen, I suppose. But like all, all the boxes are checked, man, and like everything is pretty reasonable. So you know, we just had uh, a BNR announcement, which we can also talk about a little bit, and nothing changed with Modern, and I th- I think that was the correct choice. I agree. Uh, nothing had to change. The hype going into the BNR announcement was around Stoneforge Mystic. I think it was just completely manufactured. I don't really know that there was any plausible reason to believe we were going to see a Stoneforge unbanned. And that's not even to express an opinion on whether I think it's a reasonable unban. I mean, it seems like there's just very little upside in unbanning Stoneforge. It doesn't add a lot of interesting play. It's kind of like, do you have the answer? If not, you lose. Like, why do we want to add Stoneforge back into the mix? Maybe at some point it will hop back because on power level, there's a lot of arguments to be made that it's a fine card. But we talked about this a little bit before where power level doesn't really dictate exactly what's going on in the modern ban list. It's kind of more supporting reasonable play patterns. And I, I just think... The risk of uninteractive, unfun games derived from Stoneforge Mystic are a little bit too high, and there's just not a lot of upside. Like, what gets added to the metagame by the inclusion of Stoneforge Mystic? You could say maybe disruptive white decks, death and taxes style decks, but humans is kind of playing that role already. And I don't think the format is better if those decks are strictly like white based. I think it's kind of cool that humans is doing this weird stuff and, you know, attacking while still being disruptive. That box is checked right now. We don't need to take the risk of Stoneforge Mystic to get that box efficiently checked. Right. I mean, you could make the argument for maybe it shows up in Jeskai or Blue White Control main decks or sideboards. Maybe there's like, you know, some Green White Company decks or whatever. Like it would add a little bit of diversity to the format, but like I don't think that that is entirely necessary now. Like I said, all the all the macro boxes are checked. So like what what are we doing here? Like why do you want to inject this thing into the metagame that is like y- you better kill this two mana one two or else you're probably going to lose you know like who does that serve no it seemed unnecessary to me and i think you know I-, I guess it proved that wizards ultimately agreed so we're better off for it trust me i know there's a lot of people who want to play stoneforge for whatever reason but i think on the whole you're going to enjoy the format more uh, at least for the time being without stoneforge being present what about ancient stirrings Ancient Stirrings is a problematic card, which is better than many cards that currently sit on the ban list. Taking Ancient Stirrings away probably effectively cripples three decks that cost over $1,000 a piece. And I know you can't make all of your decisions just based on economic impact, but I think one of the reasons Modern has been so successful is that people get to buy into their deck one time and they get to play it for many years. And you know, obviously that's not how you and I approach this format. That's not how professional players approach this format. We see it as a rotating thing where we're ready to bring basically anything on a week to week basis and we want to explore all options. But a lot of people don't play modern that way. And modern has become the most popular format in Magic for a number of reasons. But I think chief among those reasons is just people like being able to buy into an archetype and having it forever. And a cut of ancient stirrings would upset Tron players, you'd upset 
your lantern players, you'd upset your KCI players, you'd upset, you know, maybe Eldrazi Tron, Banth Eldrazi players. So it's like, is the format better if you take away ancient stirrings? Maybe. But I think the outrage that you would cause for a maybe better format, just not worth it right now. I, I think modern's in a fine place, and I, I'm glad they pass on the ancient stirrings banning, at least this time. And if things get out of control, we can revisit in the future. But I expect Ancient Stirrings to remain legal for quite some time. Uh, I do too. The way I look at it is that there are a certain amount of cards on my personal modern watch list where it's like, if this card gets banned eventually, I would not be shocked. Sure. And that's like Street Wraith, Faithless Looting, Manamorphose, Ancient Stirrings, uh, Mox Opal, you know, things like that, where it's like this card provides a unique effect certainly powers up any sort of archetype that can utilize this card. Simeon Spirit Guide's another one. Yes. And it's just like, uh, eventually there are going to be enough cards printed where like, you know, some busted deck gets found and it's it's just got to get the axe, right? But right now, everything everything's good. You know, like, yeah, compare Ancient Stirrings to Ponder Preordain and you're just like, well, yeah, this doesn't make any sense, right? But... It allows these decks to exist, whereas blue decks still exist. Like Storm is still a deck and right. it's still doing reasonably well. So you need to weaken decks like Storm and allow these strong decks to have some toys, even if you make like a direct comparison, it doesn't seem reasonably fair. If you remove stirrings, like Tron doesn't have opt, right? You can play Mishra's Bobble or whatever, but you know, that's such a huge downgrade that it effectively does cripple the archetypes like you mentioned. Yeah, it's it's very unfortunate that the decks that Ancient Stirrings is powering up are ones with play patterns that people tend to dislike. It's just kind of like a whammy. I don't know why things have worked out that way, but they have. People don't like playing against Lantern. They don't like playing against Tron. And I think KCI is starting to fall under that group of decks that people really don't want to be paired against. It's because of colorless cards, man. Like, that's it. It's like the the colorless cards are kind of cool, but the decks that get played that have colorless cards are decks that are doing things that are differently from the uh, decks in the format that have colors, right? Because, like, the colors have a color identity, and the colors generally get the best cards to do the things in that color identity. So, like, the colorless stuff is doing, like, weirdo sideways stuff. And then you you have to have, like, these enablers, like the Eldrazi Temples or whatever to facilitate these things and it's just like well yeah this for whatever reason like the artifacts just end up not being fun like it's just so weird that's been a historical part of magic too i mean go back to like winter orb right this is something that's existed since the beginning when the weirdo cards show up it often makes sense for them to be colorless fluctuator like all kinds of goofy cards which simply can't be in colors they fall under colorless colorless cards and that's why ancient stirrings has taken a bad rap right now but I, I do think that it's going to get more time in the format. If there was an eventual banning, I wouldn't be super surprised. But I, I think things need to get really out of whack for that to be the case. And let's not forget, we're only a few months removed from people talking about Lantern having to be banned. Right. Have you seen a Lantern deck anywhere in the past? I mean, I mean, I don't even know. I don't feel like there's been a Lantern deck in a top eight in a very, very long time. Maybe since the Pro Tour, honestly. No, and like Canister's not playing it, you know? It's just gone. I think Sam Black would still play it, but that's that's Sam, you know. But sure. it is reasonable against humans, but not much else at this point. The format does, it, it cycles, you know, like things things come and go. And 
Lantern was just an, another blip where it, it happened to be good for that given month. And now that's not really the case. So, Yep. And just something to keep in mind the next time you're bothered about losing to a deck, you know, it might not be part of the metagame two weeks from now. So just chalk it up to modern. Sometimes you take a tough loss like that, but I don't think it's worth disenfranchising a bunch of players over some some wonky play patterns. Yeah, I mean, the the recent ban talk for Modern or semi-recent has been like, oh, Dash Shadow's too broken, it wins everything. And now it's just like, oh, hey, look, like Ben Freeman top eight in Vegas with Dash Shadow. Like, that's cool because it just hasn't happened in a long time. Like yeah. the deck the deck has been so bad for so long and now it's coming around. It's like whenever you start thinking about like, oh, hey, maybe this card is ban worthy. Like, let's, let's like get the mob mentality going. It's like, eh, give it two months. And if it's still there in two months, then fine, maybe we can talk about it, but just give it time. Sure. I think even humans was starting to get to the point where people were like, well, should there be a ban of a human? And again, humans is already trending down. So it's, I I think modern has gotten to a very nice equilibrium point where things will continue to sort themselves out. Keep in mind, it only takes one printing to throw that out of whack. And, you know, we could be bemoaning the modern format very soon, but for the time being, I think be happy with what you have. This is a well-balanced format and just look for ways to kind of exploit what's going on in the metagame as opposed to bemoaning what exists in the metagame. Yeah. And Mardu is just always going to be good. <laughs> None just, of the- just like Karn. Karn will always be good. Nah, Don't worry about nah, it. man. Always, but, 100% of the time. Like Mardu is just, it's so under the radar that no one's ever going to complain. You know, no one's no one's ever really going to want to get a card banned. Now, Faithless Looting could show up and like an actually busted deck and that'd be bad times. But mm. you know, yeah. Mardu, Mardu is safe and Mardu is good. But I guess we could actually get into the meat of this podcast. We were talking about modern and just kind of how to frame this episode and what was going on. And we decided to talk about the cards that you shouldn't be playing right now, which is kind of a different take than what we normally do. Sure. We could sit here and list decks we like. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure you'll be able to infer a lot of what we're into right now as we move through this conversation. But I think it's worth a little bit more when there are so many options for us to just lay out the cards you should not be playing. The ones that it's strictly a mistake to sleeve up, that you're not benefiting from this metagame when you choose to include one of these cards in your deck. You're basically just making a mistake at this point. And we're in agreement on a lot of these cards. There's going to be some contentious ones as well. But I think on the whole, we kind of see things going the same way and and are on board with a lot of each other's choices. Yeah, I, I do want to kind of add a caveat to like, I, I don't think like strictly a mistake is necessarily a, a good qualifier because especially there are some cards on here where it's like, I think if you tune your deck to a certain degree, you can still have success. But for the most part, I think if you're registering these cards, you are starting with a handicap. Okay. That's that's probably a more tempered and fair way to explain what's going on here. So I, I can sign up for that. Because, I mean, is as much as you want to say, like, deck X in modern is unplayable, it's like next week, like, that deck will probably be in a top eight somewhere, you know? Sure, it's like, that, sure. that's just kind of how it works. It is. So anything can kind of happen, but you look at the results from this last weekend and it's very, very clear that certain decks are doing better than others and there are reasons for that. Yes. Let's let's start with, with yours and we can just go top down from the list you sent me, I guess. Sure, sure. So my first card that I believe you should not currently be playing in modern is Phyrexian Crusader. And you might take that as an indictment of the Infect strategy. However, it's the complete opposite. I actually think Infect is an excellent choice right now. 
However, I recently got to play a tournament with Green Black Infect. And I, I think Phyrexian Crusader, while on its face, it seems like it would be a great card against a very large percentage of the metagame. You'd assume it just absolutely wrecks Jeskai and leaves them without answers. And it has the right words on the face of the card. Protection from white, protection from red. You really like to see that on your Phyrexian Crusaders. But there's a lot of other problems with this card. The three mana casting cost is backbreaking in these Infect decks. It's very difficult to cast reliably with a Noble Hierarch. Um, you're taking a lot of extra damage from your lands. Your mana base is all screwed up. And basically, if you've chosen to play Phyrexian Crusader, you've talked yourself out of the better version of Infect, which is the blue-green-based versions. I mean, it, this card just wasn't even great against the white-red-based decks I played against. They had Wraths, they had Ruined Halos, they had Counterspells because you're not playing this card particularly early because it costs three mana. All of these effectively dealt with my Phyrexian Crusaders in Jeskai matchups. I even struggled against Mono Red just because the damage I took from my lands to be able to play Phyrexian Crusader on time was so large that it put me too far in the hole to even end the game before they were able to just burn me out. So I'm off Phyrexian Crusader for the time being. I know there was a period where Black Green, in fact, was making some headway into the format. I'm off it. I'm looking for blue-green, in fact. And I think blue-green, in fact, at this point, is an excellent choice, not so much black-green. So I think the black-green decks, like, with their fatal pushes and inquisitions and crusaders, are supposed to just be a turn and a half slower by design. That's correct. I agree with that. I think at that point, for the metagame the way it is now, like, that, that's a bug, not a feature. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like... There are definitely going to be times where it's like, all right, if I slow down my Infect deck a little bit, add a little bit more interaction, like, I think this could be where I want to be. But, like, I right now, you're, you want Blighted Agent, you want just a pile of pump spells, and that's about it. Yeah, it, it was crazy to me how often even decks which should be very, very vulnerable to a card like Phyrexian Crusader were able to set up efficient chump blocks just to buy them time. Snapcaster mages doing things with cryptic commands and... You know, all kinds of crazy stuff where it just doesn't do the job as well as you would expect it to. And then I played a bunch of games against Andrew Brown, and he was playing Eldrazi Tron, which I would assume would be a fantastic matchup for Infect-based decks. But the fact that I was slowed down a turn meant I was playing Phyrexian Crusader in spots where all of a sudden he had access to Walking Ballista, or he had like a Reality Smasher on the battlefield, and Phyrexian Crusader really didn't look that good into the Reality Smasher at that point. I'm just off the card. It was very, very unimpressive in so many games for me. I do believe there's a time where Phyrexian Crusader could excel in the metagame, but I don't believe that time is right now. Word. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it is it is weird to me to try and slow down your Infect deck when like the reason to play the deck is to turn three like these other like turn three, turn four decks, you know, like right. beat up, beat up on Karn, beat up on KSTI. Like that is what Glistener Elf does, right? Yeah. The fundamental turn in modern right now, I'd argue is like turn 3.5. And by playing blue, green, in fact, you're able to push to turn three. Whereas I think the black, green, in fact, deck sits very squarely in the turn 3.5 range, maybe even pushing like three, seven, five, to be honest with you. You don't yeah, have that no. many explosive uh, openers. So that's just not where I want to be right now. Yep, I absolutely agree with that. So uh, first one on my list, and ooh, my list, I think both of our lists are probably going to be like very hotly contested. Sure, people love their darlings, and we're killing a lot of darlings right now, so. Yeah, and especially since if you just go off of results, I'm clearly wrong, right? But uh, my first card is Cryptic Command. Given how the format 
is looking with a lot of these turn three, turn 3.5 decks and, you know, decks with Cavern of Souls, decks with Thalia. The decks are either trying to kill you very quickly or are trying to disrupt the decks that are trying to kill you quickly. And at that point, I don't want Cryptic Command in any matchup. So I had Cryptic Command on my first draft of this list. And then I went through the results and I just felt like I couldn't support it any longer given that, I mean, Cryptic Command might've been the most played card across all these top eights this past week. And I get what you're saying. It doesn't seem like four mana answers line up well into a, a very aggressive format, but I really just couldn't, I couldn't square that with how much success the card had. Now there was a period where I was like, well, maybe I can make the argument that they're winning in spite of Cryptic Command. Which, uh, you know, the the cheap disruption that these decks play, the efficient removal, Path to Exile, looking like a very nice card right now, having access to a Wrath is very good. You could argue that these decks are, are getting by, not because of Cryptic Command, but in spite of it. I just don't know that I have enough information to make that kind of claim, though. And I couldn't pull the trigger on including Cryptic Command in my list, but I was close. So I don't think you're completely off base. It, it just doesn't seem like it should line up well with the format but it continues to find success. I mean, Cryptic Command is much more than Dismiss. That much is very obvious and very true. But if you look at decks like Dredge, KCI, I mean, against Grixis Death Shadow, it is fine because you generally have enough removal. They don't have enough card advantage. Like Cryptic Command is kind of how you win games against them. Uh, The same is sort of true with Burn, where it's like you, you really need like hard counters against them to make sure you don't get burned out. And then we have... Uh, Hardened Scales Affinity, Death and Taxes. Uh, it's a deck that like could have Cavernous Souls, Aether Vile, Thalia. Just like it seems so bad. Like these are all decks where like you would probably shave some copies of Cryptic Command and sideboarding. It is some degree like I I am anti Cryptic Command period, but it was like very much the decks that utilize for Cryptic Command and like that is a big part of their game plan and how their deck operates and how their deck actually can take full control by having like this versatile card. That's also a hard counter, but I don't know, like just guy is doing well. Uh, white blue control very oddly crushed GP Barcelona. Although they finished sixth, seventh and eighth after making the top eight, like they just lost to the other decks in the top eight, I guess uh, Javier won his match, but you know, it, it is just bizarre to me that these decks are continuing to do well and, you know, kind of winning in spite of Cryptic Command, I guess. It's just like, what would you say Blue-White Control does particularly well in this format? Mm, Answers creatures, for the most part. I mean... Is it? Doesn't Jeskai do that better? So I guess the argument is that it it does some of the creature control that Jeskai does while also maintaining better game against Tron, right? I mean, that's where you're getting your points. Yes, slightly better game against Tron, right? Like you have, oh my. Okay, so now I'm looking at these top eight lists and it's like, they don't even have spreading seeds. They have four field of ruin. What the hell, man? Why would you play blue-white control? Terminus, I guess, right? Terminus is the answer now. You get four copies of Terminus. Add Terminus to the Cryptic Command bucket for this list. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, it also makes me very sad. For the longest time, Cryptic Command was a card that, 
basically was argued was at its most powerful when you were able to use it to turn a corner to start playing a tempo game. I mean, think about Cryptic Command and Fairies. What a different card Cryptic Command and Fairies is than a deck like pure blue-white control, where it's so many times just functioning as a hard counter, not being that explosive tempo tool. It just feels like they're not being used to their fullest. And I don't know. I don't have a better card to play in that slot right now. And you said something which I thought was interesting, which is that you know, it's never an efficient answer to anything. It's just kind of a catch-all. The fact that it's being used primarily in game ones and then being bored loud a lot, that's kind of okay. Like you you can't tighten up that slot until you have more information. So you have to play the broadest catch-all you possibly can and, and Cryptic Command fills that role. But still, that kind of just sounds like an excuse for sloppy deck building. Like there's probably something that can be used in that slot, which would do the job more efficiently. These these blue white control decks can't close games, and I feel like that's a huge issue in modern right now. Yeah, that's always been your objection to these blue white control. I mean, I remember us going back probably almost a year now uh, debating the merits of, of blue white control, and you hated the fact they weren't able to turn the corner, and that has not changed whatsoever. Uh, Teferi is not fixing that problem. I mean, is it a win condition? Sure, but it, it still takes absolutely forever. Yeah, I mean, I, I would argue that. Teferi is a similar card to Cryptic Command in that you look at Dredge, KCI, Burn. Like, Yeah, how can that card be good against any of those decks? Where do you want Teferi? I don't understand. Yeah, hard to say. That's it. I, th- I think you can play Jeskai. I think you can play Blue-White Control. That's sort of what I was getting at with the, the caveat before we started down this path here. But I do just greatly think that you're doing yourself a disservice unless you are you know, the world's greatest control player or whatever. And it's like, I look at this list, I see a lot of blue-white control. I don't see any Gabe Nassifs in here. I don't see any Wafo Tapas. Yeah, I don't know. I don't expect blue-white control to, like, this isn't the first shot across the bow from blue-white control. We're not about to see a format takeover from blue-white control, I don't think. I think this was just kind of an aberrational result. Like, there's really not a lot of explanation I have for you here. Five in the top 16. It's so weird. It is, especially because it's not reflected anywhere else in the world. It's just this one tournament. I mean, there's two copies in the top 25 of the Modern Open. So a couple copies of Blue White Control, but on the whole, not a deck we've seen a lot of lately. Yeah. Confusing. All right. Your next one. Okay. This is one I'm pretty comfortable just taking a hard pass on. Bloodbraid Elf. There's no reason to play this card right now. I don't think many people are trying, so I'm, I'm not really bashing anyone by saying this. There's almost no Bloodbraid Elves anywhere around these top you know, 16s, top 32s. So I, I'm not really relaying new information, uh, but it's interesting how scared people were of this card and how quickly it's just completely fallen off the radar. And I think most of it is that you found the best Jun deck and it's Mardu Pyromancer. And there's no reason to go down the red green path. All the best cards are, are being derived from the black red white shell. And I don't really see Bloodbraid Elf coming back into the format anytime soon. It just doesn't line up well against anything that's going on. I don't either. And I wrote about this a little bit ago where Bloodbraid struck me as a very similar card to Cryptic Command where it's like, look at the list of decks where it's like Infect and Hollow One and Ironworks. And it's like, you don't want Bloodbraid against any of these decks. Jadeen, who had top eight and two opens in a row, wrote an article that was basically just like, you know, she she just wanted Bloodbraid against all of those decks. It was a card that allowed her to close the game quickly and all of these things. And she, she said that she was like very confused when she read my article that said the basically opposite, right? So to that end, I, I kind of get it. 
you know, like Bloodbraid is a card that does help you close games, which I do think these decks need. But then again, if like Bloodbraid Elf is your clock, I think you're doing it wrong. Yeah, couldn't you find a bet? I mean, accepting that argument from Jadine, which I, I think is probably correct. I think you do need to close out these games very quickly. Shouldn't you just look towards something else to do so? Like, isn't there a more efficient way to close games out? I think so. I mean, Mardu itself does have closing problems, right? Mm-hmm. You can have great draws with quick revelers and win the game by like, you know, turn five, maybe turn six. And Jun can certainly kill on turn five. Jund has a slight edge there, but at the same time, it's just like, I don't know, I think Mardu is just better at disrupting people and making sure that it doesn't die than Jund is. And Jund is too focused on like, oh man, I gotta spend some time to like get my Tarmogoyf down, hope it doesn't die, all that sort of thing, so. Right, right. I do still think that Mardu is better, and if you're looking for disruption with closing speed, it's probably just humans, right? Fair enough, yeah, it's the most disruptive Turn four deck in the format, right? It does a lot of things to mess with you while still presenting a very fast clock. Yeah, and your your note alongside Bloodbraid Elf was ob in parentheses, and I I can't agree with that anymore. Yep, yep, just not a part of the format. Uh, well, I guess I'm, I'm going to skip around a little bit because uh, I have Tarmogoyf on my list. And th- these were in no particular order, you know, I just had it at number four or whatever, but that, that kind of goes hand in hand with Bloodbraid Elf, I think. Uh, just like another reason why Jund is not seeing a whole lot of success and Tarmogoyf is not doing its job. Like it is supposed to be a defensive tool as well as an offensive one. And right now you're seeing these disruptive aggressive decks that like Death Shadow, right? It's like Death Shadow can block, but for the most part, you're you're just punching yourself in the face a bunch. And that tends to make you pretty weak against things like burn and any sort of go wide strategy. And right now those decks don't really exist, which is why Death Shadow is kind of making a little resurgence. And if you look at like the top creatures from Barcelona, it's just a joke from the top 16. It's like Snapcaster, Vendillion, Bloodgast, Narcomoeba, Prized Amalgam, Stinkweed Imp, Scrap Trawler, (laughs) Restoration Angel. It's just like no one is really playing creatures. No, and, and it's funny also how dramatically Green's role in this format is different from what it used to be. It used to be to supply the beef, to supply things like Tarmogoyf, Scavenging Ooze, you know, these really strong mid range green creatures. Corsair of Crufix was a very playable card in Modern for a period, but that's just not what Green does anymore. Green enables broken combos and linear decks via Ancient Stirrings. It has some infect creatures. It can maybe scapeshift once in a while, but it's not interested in putting its fair creatures on the board at this juncture. And yeah, Tarmogoyf kind of falls in the same spot for me as Bloodbraid Elf. The type of decks that want it, the disruptive, you know, present a quick clock decks are just better off doing something else with with other colors. Green doesn't bring enough to the table for them. Definitely agree. Okay, so that does that bring us back to my list now? Oh yeah. This is going to be a controversial one. I know a lot of people uh, are not going to sign up for this, but I think it's a mistake to be playing cranial plating right now. And show your work. My main problem with cranial plating is that Affinity is not the fastest or the best kind of combo-ish attacking deck right now. That would be a title held by Infect. 
almost certainly blue-green, in fact. So if you're looking to quickly assemble board presence to put extreme pressure on your opponents and say, here's my things, can you beat them? Do it with blue-green, in fact. And I think your results are going to be way better. Because cranial plating also has the problem of taking a ton of splash hate from the deck, which is probably garnering the most attention of any deck in the format right now. And that's KCI. Artifact hate is just at an all-time high. Uh, Stony Silence makes a lot of sense, like we were just talking about before. Colligan's Command is making more and more sense as time goes on. Any kind of artifact disruption that you can bring to the table, I think people are going to do so for a little while. And that's going to push Cranial Plating pretty far down the hierarchy of broken attacking decks. The the correct way to do broken attacking stuff right now is either through Blue-Green Infect. I mean, you can make an argument for like dredge which can present a very quick clock and and do kind of broken ish things although i i think it's a little bit too far down on the turn hierarchy for me you were positing you thought it was a little bit faster than i do i see it as more of a turn like three seven five deck i think you see it as a little bit faster than that uh and in fairness maybe builds have evolved to push things a little bit further up the up the chain and to be a little bit faster no but as it stands right now i i don't i don't think you're wrong about dredge and that turn it's just like i i think it is kind of like it's trying to set up turn three virtual kills which are good against some decks and just absolutely embarrassing against others right it's like you could do that against tron get ugand and then you're like oh okay like i did my thing really quickly and then still lost it is it is good against some decks but not all and i think like hollow one kind of has the same problem uh maybe it's like a little little bit better than Dredge. Dredge is like more consistent in actually doing its thing, but Hollow One is like a little bit faster at actually closing the game. And Dredge is just like, all right, turn three, I have 10 power. Like some decks can't beat that, but that's not really the decks that exist right now. Like a lot of decks do actually have the capability of beating that. Sure. I mean, I've always seen Dredge as a super resilient deck to play into the face of heavy removal decks. I mean, playing Dredge into Jund is as good as it gets. That's what you're targeting. And playing Dredge into blue-white, and I think in most spots, you're going to find a lot of success. Obviously, this person won this GP, which was loaded with blue-white. You know, some of these decks have picked up Terminus now. I think just by virtue of like that being a bad card, you're able to steal some games. But Terminus would, would be effective against the Dredge decks. I just think it's clunky in so many spots that it's probably costing you as much as it's getting you. But anyway, back to cranial plating. I just think there's better ways to execute this strategy right now. So I do not want to sleeve up any cranial platings. I wouldn't say that I've always agreed with that, but for the most part I have. I think that there was a spot within the last six months where Affinity actually did look really good, but... Into Humans, I thought it was a fine choice. Like there's a point where Into Humans, you would have been correct to play Affinity. Yeah, and... Now, again, like we're not really there. It's just like there are a lot of blue, white or Jeskai decks like Mardu is picking up in popularity and any any deck that is like Lightning Bolt and Lingering Souls or K Command. It's just like that's just going to be a nightmare, you know, and like against Jund or Abzan, if they had like one or the other, like you could maybe fight through it. But now it's just like Mardu has everything at its disposal. It is just a nightmare. Uh, Jess guy is also kind of a nightmare and the more stony silences and ancient grudges and stuff that tick up in people's sideboards because of things like KCI, it just gets worse and worse. Yep. So you see like hardened scales affinity is like actually the one that's like kind of doing well. And that deck is just like a little bit more resilient. And that direction makes a little bit more sense to me than just playing actual affinity. Yeah. It could be, it's time for affinity to evolve a little bit. And I've heard a lot of people high on hardened scales affinity. 
yeah, I mean, it seems to be doing okay. And it looks kind of cool. Like, it's sort of similar to the Legacy one where, you know, you just you build big hangerback walkers. And that is just generally good against spot removal and the things that are normally good against affinity. So, sure, I, I kind of like it. At least they're trying. That's what I'll say. They're not just jamming their cranial platings into a format that's completely prepared for it. Right. So mine, we're going to we're going to have to have a chat about this one. Mine and I I guess I'm not 100% sold on this, but it's Urza's Tower. Yeah, this is this is utter nonsense. Go ahead. In, Go ahead. in fact is winning tournaments. It's just not it's not a good time to play Tron, man. Did you look at the results from this past weekend? Like Tron in the most wide open diverse field maybe in the history of Magic. Tron is everywhere. There was two mono green Tron decks in the top eight of the open. There were none in Barcelona. I'll give you that. However, I did hear that in the PTQ in Barcelona, it was like three of the top four slots or something like that. Right. Okay. But the funny thing about that is Means that they were eliminated from day yeah. one. Yeah. And it you. was, and they were playing against all the other people who were eliminated. But hold on. I've got more for you. There were three copies of Tron in the top eight of the classic. And there were two copies in the top eight of the Moto PTQ. The classic follows the same logic. Okay, that's that's fine. But as the Grand Prix, rather, <laughs> look, there's there's Tron everywhere right now. Is in fact a bad matchup. Sure, I I can't really defend that one. I can argue that you can make your in fact matchup better. You can never make it great, but if you could start playing some things like gut shots, which I've had a lot of success with, then you know you just set up your Oblivion stones and you get yourself in a fine place, and you could play a Ghost Quarter and a Field of Ruin. And I'm not saying you're getting it to a good matchup, but maybe you can make it palatable, where you're able to steal an infect matchup throughout the day, and then you get to murder these blue white control decks, which aren't even playing spreading teas. Can you imagine what Tron does to the top eight in Barcelona if it makes the top eight? Well, all the blue white decks got beat, and then you get beat by like the other decks that beat up on them. But I agree with you, especially with like the Emrakul and the Emrakul the Promised End showing up in the Tron sideboards. It's like the blue white decks are are just kind of a joke. Like they're, they're just not even trying. Right. But for for Infect specifically, yeah, Gutshot's rad. You are right. But this is the the turning point. I think like this is the point where people start picking up those decks more and more. And then things get worse for Tron going forward. I don't think that like last week was a, necessarily a bad week to play Tron, but I think like next week doesn't seem great, right? I mean, you could be spot on with this, right? And and a hundred percent, in fact, rises up next week, and it's a horrible week to play Tron. And then the very next thing that will happen will be that Jeskai will be everywhere with a sideboard slanted towards more removal spells, beating up on Infect, and you can bring Tron right back right. into that metagame. Like yeah, Tron moves in and out of the metagame so quickly that it can be wrong one week and then right the next, and. Just for the past few months, it's been right far more often than it's been wrong. And I also think that if you're willing to take risks with your sideboard construction, you can make all of your Tron matchups palatable. Not great. I'm not saying it's favorable. I'm just saying you can make it palatable and you're not scooping the tournament if you get paired against, you know, two Infect decks, three Infect decks. So Tron in the open uh, defeated Ironworks. That was Tan and Grace. And the other Tron player, Adam Case, lost to Hollow One. And uh, Tannen was defeated by Zan with Infect. I don't know. Like, what what is the Tron KCI matchup like? It seems like they have the potential to to be faster than you, and like mostly ignore the stuff that you're doing. Yeah, you've got you've got your relics. You've got like 
oblivion stones. All of this stuff is not great. I mean, KCI is super resilient, right? So yeah. I think you're pretty hard pressed to still produce a very quick card. The good news is that KCI doesn't really do anything to stop that, right? You're able to pretty much go about your business as Tron and and they are kind of like 3.5-ish. They don't go off on turn three all that often. I, I don't know. I, I haven't played the matchup enough to say authoritatively, this is where things lie. I, I don't think you're a huge dog though. You see combo and you're like, oh, I'm the Tron player. I have no chance. I don't think that's the case here. I think you can very much compete with these uh, KCI decks. Yeah, I feel like you're a slight dog, but... I mean, Matt Nass, top 83 GPs in a row. He won two in a row. I can't imagine that he was able to do that while just like dodging Tron if it were a bad matchup, right? Like I would imagine that he defeated it way more often than he lost to it. Yeah, I I think that's reasonable. I mean, especially, you know, Ironworks is one of those decks that very much scales with the skill of the player. So if you know this deck inside and out, you're going to get some edges that other people are going to miss on and and maybe pull some things out where other people would not have been able to. Uh, I'm sure that's been the case for a lot of Matt's success, but I think you're probably right. A slight edge to Ironworks, but nothing that Tron can't handle. Word. Uh, You're number three then. So we did my number three. That was Cranial Plate. And again, these are, no, are in no particular order, but... Or, yeah, your number four, sorry. Yeah, my number four is Slippery Boggle. And obviously this extends to all surrounding bogles. I'm sorry, I said boggle. I hate when I mispronounce that word. It extends to all components around these style of decks. The format is not about life totals and fair creature combat anymore. Things look very different at this point. None of these decks really care. It's kind of like, do I have control of the board or do I not? Am I able to combo or am I not? It's not, what does my board presence look like? Is life gain going to keep me alive? Those days are gone. Uh, As humans has gone, so has that style of magic and modern. And I don't see any reason to sleeve up a bogle right now. It's just not the right time for these guys. Again, Barcelona had basically zero creatures that were trying to attack. Yeah, I mean, I think you can make an argument that like maybe Dredge is okay. I don't even know that I would say that authoritatively burn you know you're usually okay against burn but there's you're you're picking very small spots to be favored you're not picking a metagame to be favored against and that's what you want to do when you're choosing your deck in modern you need to be favored against a perceived metagame not a couple random decks that happen to do well so yeah hard pass on on these hexproof uh creatures one of bogle's big draws in recent months was just being able to main deck leyline of sanctity and have it actually be good also mm-hmm. and that doesn't that matter sh- much that ship has sailed yeah it's not gone. important all right my number 4 goblin guide kind of the same deal with slippery bogle i think where burn has the capacity to turn three people it happens very very infrequently it's more of a very solid turn 4 deck and it is generally better against you know, other slow decks and decks that maybe have some blockers, but not are like, aren't spewing a bunch of blockers into play. Right. Like we, we don't really have that, that metagame. Like we have a bunch of blue white control decks that have like main deck timely reinforcements. And we have a bunch of combo decks and granted burn is quite good against infect. I'm not sure how much like these guys of St. Traffs or invisible stalkers actually do to actually sway the matchup. But I still feel like Burn is pretty bad despite Infects. Yeah, Invisible Stalker is some cute tech, by the way. I, I really like that inclusion. Like you said, I don't know if it completely swings the matchup, but it's trying. 
because otherwise that matchup is pretty nightmarish. So that's the only real point under which I want to defend Goblin Guide is that if, in fact, just is absolutely everywhere. You can or Tron. Or Tron, sure. Yeah, especially Mono Green Tron, which has almost no chance. You know, for a while when there was the collective brutality Tron list, uh, you were able to pull out a game here or there. That's not really the case anymore. Mono Green Tron is just getting blown out by Goblin Guide consistently. The only feather in the cap of Goblin Guide right now is being able to hate on these Infect decks. So if they're everywhere next week, you might be able to sleeve up Burn. Uh, other than that, I'm with you. Passing on the Goblin Guides. Your last one. I like this one. So the final card, I am declaring it a, hmm, I guess we're not using mistake, a poor choice to play right now is Collected Company. And this kind of falls into the same principles we've been talking about throughout. This is a combo metagame. You don't just want to build a huge board presence. You need to disrupt. You need to be on board and and asserting the end of the game very quickly and doing something like collected company in a selfless spirit in the night of the a night of the reliquary sounds horrible. Like I have zero interest in doing those things. Now, are there broken applications of collected company that you might be able to sell me on? Something like a, a very focused combo-y version of Vizier Devoted Druid? Maybe, maybe you can get me on board with that. But as it stands, I think most collected company decks are doing something which just doesn't matter in this format. And you know, this was a card that had its moment in modern. It will have its moment again, but you can't do it when when the fundamental turn is turn three point five. You can't be satisfied with putting two creatures into play. I mean, possibly on turn three, but there's a lot of removal for these these mana dorks right now. There's still lightning bolt as the most played card. There was tons of paths to exile, which obviously ramps you, but there's still a lot of fatal push floating around as well. So you're not reliably casting this on turn three and. I'm just not buying this as a card I want to play. I agree. The thing about Collected Company is, like you noted, uh, you have access to Devoted Druid and Vizier Remedies, and you can potentially build a fast enough combo deck, but there's a reason why, or there's a couple reasons why, the majority of creatures have just kind of evacuated the format, and that's because there's a bunch of decks with a bunch of removal, too. Like, not only is your deck just, like, a little bit slower, but... Everyone is just trying to kill all your stuff. And these decks, despite having collected company, are not resilient enough. And I do think that the like post-mortem lunge collected company deck, not the like super, super all-in commune with nature or hall of the bandit lord one, mm-hmm. uh, but like kind of like the more mid-rangey but faster one, like could be good. But then it's like you you look at all these blue white decks and they have like terminus and path to exile, and it's like, okay, never mind. Like right. if Jess Guy is actually the control deck of choice, then maybe postmortem lunge is good. And maybe that's the way that you know you you get around and like do these sorts of things. But at that point, it's just like, are are you just trying too hard to like make this one card work when realistically you should just be trying to play infect or something? Right. I, I guess if I wanted to play devil's advocate and and beat up my own argument. You can point to the fact that if you look at something like the top eight of Barcelona, there's virtually no creatures there. And that points to the fact that people should start moving away from these removal heavy decks and, and maybe start trimming some of the removal spells that they've been playing historically. And there might be just a sweet spot to show up with something based around collected company. I'm not trying to pick that spot though. That sounds almost impossible to me. While the format's most played card is still lightning bolt and there's just spot removal absolutely everywhere. I'm not taking the gamble of finding the right spot for collected company. 
Well, if if removal exits the metagame, I would not want to go to collect a company. I would want to go to infect. And especially if like removal is gone because there's a bunch of like turn 3.5 combo decks, then infect is where you want to be, especially if no one is like trying to bolt your turn one glistener elf, you know? Sure. Like just at, at no point really does that logic make me think like, oh yeah, like time it's, for time to put nine, yeah. it's time to put Knight of the Reliquary into play, boys. Sure, sure. I mean, I guess the argument you'd have to have something that basically beat up on the other creature decks while still being a creature deck in and of itself. And that's not really the role that these collected company decks have been able to play in the past. So there's no reason to believe they'll be able to do so going forward. Or beat up on the combo decks and infect. Like, it, I mean, it's possible that there's like, you know, some mix of like, is it Staticaster Spell Queller or something that is good? But it's like, I'm I'm not going to mess with that. Maybe it's Spirits, actually. Maybe that's a good one, but... Uh, that sounds closer to something like Knight of the Relic. It sounds closer to right than something like Knight of the Relicary. But like you said, that's a lot to unpack. And you still have to pick your spot and be correct about it. So not worth the effort at this stage. Yeah, I'm not going down that rabbit hole. So you have one more for us, right? I do. It is Remand. Remand is kind of a weird one because it has seen much play outside of Storm. But that is kind of indicative of the the storm archetype, like the fact that I have this on my list as well. Right. So you just believe storm to be a poor choice uh, going forward, as well as any other. I mean, I don't think what else is out there for remand based decks. Maybe some kind of uh, scape shift type strategy. Blue scape shifts. Any of the blue combo decks, like through the breach, madcap experiment, right, that right. sort of stuff. Okay. Uh, but yeah, like Remand used to show up in like Jeskai and Blue Eye Control occasionally because it was just the best two mana counter spell. But that's not true anymore, mostly because Remand has gotten a lot worse as the format gets narrower and the deck speed up, the fundamental turn speeds up, and the average CMC across these decks is just dropping. Like you don't want to be Remanding one mana spells. That is just a losing proposition, right? Like. When people are playing three and four mana spells, that's when remand is great, and that just isn't right now. Uh, you suggested Gifts Ungiven, kind of in a similar vein to like Collected Company and the fact that just if everyone's spells are cheap, like you don't want to be the person casting Gifts. Like that card is just like impossibly too slow. Uh, Storm kind of makes up for that by being a combo deck, but it is a little on the slower, more resilient side. Is there just a faster version of Storm that can exist? Like, are people too tied to the Gifts version? Or is it just you'll fold any kind of disruption if you're not doing Gifts shenanigans? Uh, I messed with some, like, Turbo Empty the Warrens versions a while ago that did not strike me as particularly good. It's possible that something like Goblins is yeah, just Goblin a better Storm. version of it. Yeah. No, like, not even Storm, but just, like, Riser's Goblin deck, right? It's like... He's trying to like burning tree emissary bushwhacker. Like that is what you should be doing for like your storm type stuff. I could see Skirk Prospector doing some work in a, a goblin stormish type build. Uh, we have Warchief now too. Some foe mob war, war marshals. There might be something there as far as a nouveau storm deck. But you might be right. It's just better to probably bushwhack those things than to do uh, silly empty the warrens type stuff. Yeah, because for empty to be good, you still probably need a bushwhacker, and then at that point, you're just jumping through way too many hoops. Mm. Like, just just play eight whack, some goblin grenades, and call it a day. Uh, it's been so long since I cast a fecundity, though. It'd be pretty exciting to do so again. Oh, I know, I know that that card spiked. I wonder what it what it's at now. If it actually like settled down or whatever. Uh, I think it did settle down because I was I was selling some cards this week. Actually, that had some 
had some floating around. And I think fecundity has leveled out a bit from its previous highs. Yeah, it's only 450. Mm, that seems about right because there has not been much fecundity floating around thus far. No, no, just zero. It's like all nonsense. Like so many of the games come down to actual traction and, you know, like the, the Tarmogoyf decks or Death Shadow decks are just going to kill all your stuff. You'll have a card of or a hand of 10 cards, but you won't be able to do anything. Sure, sure. So, yeah, you, you, you can't fall behind. And uh, if you don't have Prospector and you get Terminus, like. <laughs> That's a wrap. That's a wrap, but that's only going to happen like 10% of the time because Terminus is so bad. No, it's going to take over the format. Terminus is everywhere. Get ready for it. I take the under. <laughs> that's probably a safe bet. What a <laughs> shocking card to see in the top eight, honestly. I, w- I was not expecting to see four Terminus in any consideration. What? what happened? How did everyone just end up drinking the Kool-Aid? I don't know. I, 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 there's probably some influencer out there that we missed who is no, it's, Terminus. It's, it's got to be Nassif, right? You think he's responsible for this? I mean, he played Blue Eye Control. He was streaming it a bunch. I, I watched him. Did he have Terminus in his deck? I, I don't recall. I didn't pay attention to the specifics exactly, but he should be ashamed if he's responsible for this. Although he gets he gets away with it. I'll give him a pass. He's done enough for the game, and you know, done enough for control archetypes that if he's responsible for this Terminus, I'm not going to hold it against him. Yeah, let's let's say you couldn't play Tron. What would you play? Just Green Blue Infect. I think so. I, I think this week it would be green, blue, infect. I'm also kind of itching to pick up Death Shadow again and yeah. and get a feel for the, where that deck's at. But I honestly don't think I would play Tron this week. I, I think I, I would I would pick up blue, green, infect if I had a tournament coming up. Word. I like Mardu. I do think that you can alter it to be more disruptive and everything and have a fighting shot. But ultimately, like deck has a pile of removal and kind of needs to have that. It also doesn't have a clock. So if I were not as stupid as I am, I would play Infect, but I'm I'm just too stupid to play that deck. I don't know. Uh, but I, I would try and play Grixis Death Shadow. Uh, so sounds like we're at kind of the same place as it stands right now with this metagame. I, I think the, the pieces are in place to have a plan of attack. I think this was a really good exercise in kind of talking through what doesn't work as a way to lead ourselves and our listeners to what does work. Like you really have to define the cards you don't want to be playing to understand why you are playing the cards you ultimately choose to play. Right. Sometimes it works in reverse, right? Where you're just like, Oh, this is the strategy that I want to be doing. But in, in a wide open format, like modern, that doesn't necessarily always work. Right. Because it's like, you can make arguments against basically anything. Right. And and we kind of did that, but now it's just like, well, if you cross off, uh, a bunch of things from the list and then it's like well you know there's going to be like a lot of artifact hate still so we can't play ironworks or affinity we can't really play humans that seems like a bad idea don't really want to play control hollow one kind of stinks burn stinks it's like all right next deck on the list is grixis or unless you want to pick up Desh- or unless you want to pick up infect right yeah so, yep just crossing things off the list until you get there i like it a good new uh kind of heuristic for dealing with wide open formats and how to choose when everything seems viable or nothing seems viable. (laughs) It basically means the same thing, right? Like there's really no difference to your evaluation in that, in those two contexts. Yep. Absolutely. Well, you got a question for us. Uh, I do have a question for us. This is just a, a neat little question from Jared Mazant. I hope I pronounced that right. Although we did very well with our pronunciation last week, I understand. So hopefully we got this one as well. Yeah, we're experts. But Jared wants to know, 
what are some good ways for an average player to give back to the magic community? I think this is an awesome question, both in terms of what it's trying to accomplish. And that's just a nice, simple question. And I think it's directed at a great person because you personally have given back a ton to the magic community. So why don't you take this away and let Jared know what you think? Uh, I would say some, but I, I think that's that's going to be a constant with me is just like underplaying it. Yeah, you're being modest. That's fine. Whatever. We can skip this part where I tell you what you've done, but go ahead. Answer his question. Yeah, I think a lot of it depends on like what your involvement in magic is. If you are talking about average player, like average player listening to this podcast, it's like, you know, person who has a LGS who is part of a community there, maybe part of some Facebook groups, maybe traveling to some tournaments and like you have people that you can ride with and stuff like that. And I I think people in that spot are generally in a pretty good position to just kind of like take the role of, I don't know, just like MTG mom or dad sort of. It's just like, foster good relationships between the people around you, like facilitate things among your peers as best you can. It's just like, you know, someone wants to play a deck in a tournament and you have the cards. It's like, you know, loan, loan some of the cards. Someone needs a ride to the tournament. Like do that. If, if someone is being, you know, just like a net negative at your LGS, say something like basically what you can do is just make sure that everyone else is having a good time. And just like cut out the negative aspects of it, try and just be more positive and make sure that everyone is having fun and getting the most that they possibly can out of magic. And I think that that alone is just huge, right? Because that sort of stuff just kind of incidentally ends up getting paid forward. Yeah, I think that's a spot on answer. Very practical. One of the things... I don't, I don't want to say that I don't like this about the question because it's a great question, but I guess one of the, the words I take issue with in the question is good ways for an average player to give back to the magic community. I mean, I, I don't think it really matters if you're the average player, if you're the platinum pro, if you're someone who just entered the community. I think that just being positive in your interactions with others, you know, making the game more pleasant, making it easier to spread the game, making sure more people pick up the game and are comfortable in your LGS or are comfortable at their first GP or or just generally like generally making sure that magic is a safe, comfortable, fun place to be is worth the world. Because even if that feels small, if that feels like it's not accomplishing these kind of bigger goals, if, if it doesn't look as you know, dramatic as someone raising, say, a ton of money for Planned Parenthood. That's that's not really true. All of these little things function to kind of prop up the whole. And without people making magic a great game to play, without people fostering great magic communities, things like, you know, huge fundraising efforts and things like global initiatives and things like, you know, Wizards' commitment to pride and to LGBTQ inclusion and and all those things, they can't happen without this foundation of just good people playing magic and making sure people want to be there and people are having a positive experience. So I I don't think it matters who you are. I, I just think bringing positivity to the game, like you said, it gets paid back over and over and over. It reflects in your own experience. Like if you're the guy in your store or the girl in your store or whoever in your store who people know they can count on to 
lend a card or to have an extra spot in their car. You'll see people do that for others. And it just kind of creates this whole rolling momentum where magic as a whole becomes a better game because of these little tiny efforts you take on a day-to-day basis. So, I, I mean, I guess it's kind of easy to, to give back to the magic community. Just, just be good. It's that simple. Be a good person, help others out. And I think you'll see some, some very tangible results in not only your own life, but the community as well. Definitely. I mean, I think a big part of that is maybe making a conscious effort to be less self-focused, like try and practice empathy a little bit more often, be aware of what is going on around you and, you know, the things that are going on in other people's lives and everything. And just like that, that sort of stuff will happen accidentally as long as you are not focused on yourself as much as usual, I think. Right, right. Good point. Good point. A lot of this comes back to empathy and just thinking about others, which, you know, I think is the most admirable trait someone could have is that that lack of selfishness and the ability to put themselves in other shoes. It's something I really find myself gravitating towards when I'm choosing friends and, and the people I associate with. So spot on there. Beyond this, I will note that you and I are looking into some ways that maybe the greater game podcast community can give back to not only the magic community, but maybe uh, the community at large right now. And some exciting stuff that's you know starting to creep up on us. Maybe we'll have some more details about soon. We can't let the cat out of the bag quite yet. Everything's not fleshed out, but I think there's going to be some exciting stuff coming uh, as far as this goes. Yes, sir. Uh, maybe within a month. I think we're going to do a lot of work on this next week, probably. Okay. I like that time frame. And uh yeah, it's going to be something, you know, I, I know you have shown a clear commitment to sharing, helping out where you can. I certainly feel very much the same way. And I'm excited that I think we're going to be able to do something fun with kind of the game community coming up that'll help out a lot of people in need. Yep, absolutely. I mean, Jared talked about average player and you kind of took issue with that. But I think this is a perfect, <clears throat> excuse me, this is a perfect example of reach having a very tangible benefit when it comes to stuff like this. No, that's fair. You can't deny that. The fact that you have a platform that a lot of people uh, are going to listen to what you say and and take heed of what you say, it certainly has an impact. But if not for the greater community inspiring those kind of actions and you know, not for, if not for magic solidifying itself as a place in your mind that you can do good, that you can create positive social interactions, who knows what you choose to do with your platform? You know what I'm saying? I I think ultimately you come out on the right side of things because you're a good person, but the fact that magic is doing a lot to foster these kind of uh, inclusive and beneficial communities certainly keeps the ball rolling and ensures many more initiatives uh, are developing, be it from average players or from well-known players in the community. No, absolutely. What what would you say is the meaning of life? <laughs> that, that's a serious question. Hold on. You just really amped up the stakes of, it, of question it can, time. It can be rhetorical because basically all, all I want to say is that like for me, it is just my interactions with other humans, you know, and and if that is the case, then I want to be a positive force and influence in other people's lives. Right. Because like if at the end of the day, like that is kind of what I've accomplished and that is what has happened. Like, why would you not want that to be positive? And why would you not want it to affect people in that manner? 
Yeah, I mean, that it's just like adds on to the question, I think. Like that is just kind of like the driving force behind my actions and the things that I do. Yeah, so so my answer to your question would be like, this this sounds worse than it is, but I'll explain it a little bit. My answer to your question would be my pursuit of happiness is the most is is the meaning of life. And that sounds selfish, but that's not really the way I see pursuing happiness. I see pursuing happiness a lot about what I give back to the world around me. So exactly. a, a lot of my happiness is derived from what am I able to contribute to society, to the community, to to you know, just someone's day. Am I, am I able to via my personality like make someone's day a little bit better? Pursuit of happiness sounds like a selfish answer. That's really not how I mean it. I, I think it generally lines up with what you're saying. The more you can give back to people, kind of the more you get back and, and the better your experience in life is going to be. Yeah. And it doesn't even have to be give back, right? It can just be, be positive, be someone that people want to be around or be someone that, you know, people just end up having a good time around. Like, sure. You don't necessarily have to give anything. Just don't be a net negative. Yeah. And you know, it, it's funny too, because I don't know how far down this rabbit hole we want to go really with our close of show question, but like as someone who has issues with depression sometimes, sometimes doing this stuff is very difficult. It's hard to stay positive and, and it's hard to feel like you're contributing positively to the community. And you really have to battle through these dark clouds on some days and be like, I, I have to find a way to put forth a good face. And I just want to make sure that people who are in a similar spot and have those same battles and want to contribute positively, but struggle sometimes in doing so, know that that's okay too. Like you can have your bad days, but if you're ultimately trying and you're coming to the table with the best self you can. I think people who really know you are willing to look past those those tough times and and see what you're contributing on the whole as opposed to those low points that you might move through throughout your life. Yeah, I certainly relate to that a lot. And like I said, you know, it isn't necessarily about giving. Like certainly don't run yourself ragged, like trying to do things for the greater good. Like you do have to take care of yourself because if you burn out, there's nothing left, right? Like right. you are going to do more good long-term by keeping yourself alive and healthy than trying to just burn super quick in the short term. Spot on. That's game. Good luck.